Hello, I'm R.A. Spratt. I write and perform this podcast. If you'd like to support the show, I'm a children's author, so you can buy a book by me, or you can buy me a coffee by going to buymeacoffee.com slash stories R.A. Spratt. It's an easy way to make a small thank you gift to the show so I can keep kicking this can down the road. The podcast directory you're using right now should have a link to my Buy Me A Coffee page in the show notes, or you can type it into your browser. That's buymeacoffee.com slash stories R.A. Spratt. All contributions are gratefully appreciated. Hello and welcome to Bedtime Stories with me, R.A. Spratt. Well, at the beginning of August, I've got a new book coming out and it's called The Pesky Kids, The Final Mission. It's the fifth and final book in the Pesky Kids series. So to get ready for that, I thought that this week on the podcast, I would read for you the first two chapters of the first book in the series, The Pesky Kids and the Mystery of the Squashed Cockroach. I hope you enjoy it. This is the first book in the Pesky Kids series, The Mystery of the Squashed Cockroach, and I shall now commence on page one, the prologue. The line shuffled forward. Dr Banfield had just checked in for her flight. She was hoping to get back before the children came home from school. She only needed to pass through security, then she'd be able to sit down and relax in the lounge. As much as you can relax, surrounded by a thousand sweaty, nervous strangers. But the line was taking forever. There was a family in front of her that was fussing over their hand luggage. They seemed to have broken every airport security rule. Liquids, scissors, bottle openers. They had everything you shouldn't in their bags. Finally, their things passed through the x-ray machine for the last time and Dr Banfield was able to lift her one carry-on suitcase onto the conveyor. She rifled through the pockets of her old tweed jacket, digging out her spare glasses, throat lozenges and tissues. She dumped them into a plastic tray and then stepped through the metal detector. Security guards never wanted to pat her down or do an explosive test on her bag. She was a frumpy middle-aged lady. She was harmless. They barely even noticed her. That was until now. The conveyor belt jutted to a halt. Dr Banfield looked up as a man in a cheap grey suit stepped into the security area. He whispered something to the x-ray operator, then pulled Dr Banfield's suitcase aside. He motioned for Dr Banfield to join him at the counter. This had never happened before. She watched as the man in the suit opened her suitcase and searched through her dirty clothes and museum paperwork. "'What is this?' said the man with a thick accent. He pulled something from the bottom of her suitcase. It was a large bone. "'That's the ulna of a stegosaurus,' said Dr Banfield. "'It was found in Kiev. "'It's particularly significant because the striations on the bone "'appear to be the teeth marks of a saber-toothed tiger, "'which would be the earliest known confirmation of that species "'on the Asian continent.' "'Really?' said the man in the suit. "'We'll see about that.' He raised the bone and whacked it down hard on the edge of the counter. "'No!' cried Dr Banfield. "'It's a crucial fossil for the understanding of the evolution of mammals in Eastern Europe!' The man in the suit apparently did not like being yelled at by a frumpy middle-aged lady. He looked angry now as he raised the bone again and smashed it down even harder. It shattered into a thousand fragments. But lying in the middle was something black and shiny. A small USB drive.' The man in the suit picked it up. What do we have here? I've got no idea how that got there, said Dr Banfield. She turned pale. Her eyes gaped wide. This was going horribly wrong. You had better come with me, said the man ominously. But my flight, said Dr Banfield. I have to get home. My children are expecting me. I'm sure it will only take a few moments to clear this up, said the man with a smile. 
he was lying. It took Dr Banfield's very large brain just a millisecond to recognise this fact, another millisecond to see that two armed guards were approaching to assist him, and a third millisecond to decide that her best course of action was to punch this man in his cheap grey suit in the throat with her wedding ring. Dr Banfield lashed out with lightning speed, hitting the man so hard his brain was momentarily starved of oxygen and he collapsed. The two armed guards hesitated. Their smaller brains were struggling to assimilate the fact that a dowdy middle-aged lady had just felled their department head. One of them belatedly reached for his gun, but his hand had only just touched the grip when Dr Banfield broke in his forearm with a brutal turning kick. She then kicked him in the knee with her other foot to knock him down too. The other guard lunged for her. Dr Banfield ducked, slammed her elbow into his solar plexus, delivered an uppercut to his jaw and took off running. She vaulted over the x-ray machine and sprinted back out into the check-in lobby. It would only take a few seconds for reinforcements to arrive. She had to get out of there. Unfortunately, 2pm at any airport is a busy time. People were moving slowly, dragging unwieldy luggage behind them. Dr Banfield ran, picking up speed as she hurdled bags, bounced off passengers and dodged around trolleys until suddenly she slammed into a brick wall. At least that's what it felt like. She soon worked out from the grey polyester jacket it pressed into her face that she'd been crash-tackled. She was hoisted to her feet. The man in the suit was holding her tightly by the upper arm. He looked dishevelled. Dr Banfield, you are under arrest, spat the man. But I'm just an academic, said Dr Banfield, with bumbling innocence. A scientist. I study dinosaur bones. Don't give me that, said the man. You are a spy. Chapter One. A Bad Start. Shut your face or I'll shut it for you, said April angrily. She was a wiry girl who, like a hummingbird, had the strange ability to be in constant motion and appear eerily still at the same time. You can't shut a face, said Finn in his pedantic monotone. A face isn't something that opens and closes. You could ask me to shut my eyes or shut my mouth, but my ears and my nose are unblockable orifices. I'll block them for you when I punch you and they swell shut, said April. Finn narrowed his eyes slightly, which was about as expressive as his features got. He was not terribly in touch with his own emotions, so they rarely affected the shape of his face. No violence, said Joe, or I'll tell Mum. Joe was their older brother, and he stammered when he was nervous. And talking made him nervous, so he stammered quite a lot. Joe knew exactly what he wanted to say, but just as the words were about to leave his mouth, they would perform some sort of acrobatics on the tip of his tongue and refuse to emerge. So generally, he said very little, except for constantly reminding April and Finn not to hurt each other. April made a scoffing noise. Ha! Their mum didn't often notice what was going on, so it was pretty easy to keep things from her, like kidney punching your brother during dessert. April made do with shoving Finn out of the way and stomping up the front path so she got to the door first. She punched in the code. They lived in a normal suburban house, but their mother was forgetful and often lost her keys, so they'd had a pin pad lock installed. There's a limit to how many times you can get locked out of your own home and it still feels like fun. That limit is one. Having to eat raw vegetables from the garden while you wait for a locksmith is never a barrel of laughs. As soon as they pushed into the house, a whirlwind of fur leapt at April, trying to lick her face, but falling short and scrabbling all over her knees instead. Oh, I missed you too, Pumpkin, gushed April, bending over to greet her beloved dog. I hate it when we do javelin P.E. and you have to stay home. Pumpkin's head snapped around as Finn entered the house. The dog leapt forward and bit him on the ankle. Ow! cried Finn. Good boy, said April, fishing a treat out of her pocket and rewarding her dog. You can't train Pumpkin to bite me, said Finn. I didn't train him, said April. He's just following his natural canine instincts. He can smell loser. 
Joe was a tall and growing taller 16-year-old boy. He seemed to have more muscles popping up every month, so he spent a great deal of time eating food. He left April and Finn to their argument and went to the kitchen to find a snack. He didn't have much luck. The fridge was empty. There was a low-fat yoghurt and kale juice in there, but Joe didn't consider them to be food. Mom! yelled Joe. But there was no reply. Joe assumed his mum was looking at a particularly engrossing dinosaur bone. He opened the pantry and sighed. There wasn't much in there either, except for a half-empty jar of olives. That would have to see him through till dinner. Joe opened the jar and wandered back to the living room. Mum! yelled April. Finn called me an idiot! No, said Finn. I called you an idiot savant. In that context, the word idiot is just an adjective. Savant is actually a compliment. It means to be unnaturally good at something. You said she's good at something, said Joe. This was unusual. Finn was 13 and April was 12. They were, in fact, only 11 months apart. So for one month of the year, they were technically the same age. And in all their lives, ever since they had learned to speak, Finn and April had never said anything nice to each other. Not once. He said I was an idiot savant, explained April, at being a pain in the neck. It's true, said Finn, it's your one freakish talent. Mum, bellowed April. Their mother didn't have many rules, and the few rules she did have were rarely enforced, but she was adamant that they should not call each other idiot or stupid, so April knew if she presented her argument well, she could get Finn in a lot of trouble. If you dob me in, said Finn, I'll tell her what you did at lunchtime. I didn't do anything at lunchtime, said April. You wrestled Michael Harrigan to the ground, Finn reminded her. Now April rolled her eyes. He loved it, she said. She tucked her dark, wavy hair behind her ear. You did promise no more wrestling, Joe reminded her. Yeah, the headmaster made you sign a contract saying you wouldn't, Finn added. I didn't hurt Michael, said April. You tore his shirt off, said Finn, with his characteristic irritating accuracy. He should learn to sew then, retorted April. It's an important life skill. Fine, said Finn. Then you won't mind me telling Mum about it. Mum! You are the worst, said April, clenching her fists. If she was going to get in trouble for wrestling, she might as well do some more wrestling to make it worthwhile. Where is she? asked Joe, looking at the ceiling. Their mother didn't live in the ceiling, but she had an office directly above the living room. So normally, if they yelled and screamed at each other long enough, eventually they'd hear her chair scrape back as she got up and came downstairs so she could shout at them to stop shouting. But there were no sounds from above. Did she say she was going to stay late at the museum, asked Joe. Their mother was a paleontologist, a very senior and well-respected one. But the thing about spending all day with a bunch of bones that are 300 million years old is that nothing is ever really urgent. If it's waited 300 million years, chances are it can wait one more day. So their mother was very rarely late home, unless she accidentally got stuck in a lift or forgot her pass to get out of the car park, which she did with surprising regularity. If you can't keep track of your own house key, remembering a pass card is going to be pretty difficult too. Maybe she got lost again, said April. Their mother often got lost, particularly in shopping centre car parks. But she would normally just get a taxi home, pick up the kids, and then they'd all go back and help her find the car. Joe looked at the answering machine next to the telephone. The light wasn't flashing. There were no messages. She would have left a message if she was delayed. She's probably fallen asleep, said Finn. He went over to the staircase and bounded up the stairs two at a time. It was pancakes for breakfast. That always makes her sleepy. They heard Finn throw open the office door. Mom, he called, but there was no answer. Joe and April heard Finn looking in the other rooms upstairs. She's not here. I'll check the shed, said Joe, trudging towards the back door. Why? Do you think she's decided to mow the lawn? Asked April sarcastically. 
Their mother had never mowed the lawn. She didn't understand the Western cultural obsession with short grass. Some of their more zealous neighbours had pleaded with her to let them do it for her, saying that long grass encouraged snakes. But their mother just said she quite liked snakes. A very low percentage of them were venomous, and they only lived 2.3 kilometres from the nearest hospital. So even if one of them was bitten by a venomous snake, they'd probably be able to access the anti-venom in time. It only took Joe a few seconds to cross their small yard to the tiny shed where their mother kept things she didn't use very often, like the vacuum cleaner and the ironing board. Mum wasn't there. Joe came back shaking his head. Where could she be? Even April was starting to get concerned, and generally she didn't stop being angry long enough to be concerned about anything other than herself. Just then, Pumpkin ran to the front door, barking wildly. Finn jogged back down the stairs. What's Pumpkin barking about now? Oh, the struggles of Indigenous people in Papua New Guinea, said April sarcastically. I don't know. I don't have dog ESP. True. How can you have extrasensory perception when you've barely got regular perception, agreed Finn. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. April launched herself at Finn, grabbed him by the collar and wrenching him sideways to pull him off his feet. But 12 years of living with April had taught Finn a thing or two about self-defence tactics. He grabbed April's wrists and dropped his weight on them. So as he fell down, he brought her down too. April was just about to put Finn in a headlock and started administering noogies when there was an almighty... Bang! Their front door exploded inwards. Splintered wood flew everywhere and a stocky black-clad figure wearing a full face mask burst into the room. The children found themselves looking down the barrel of a handgun. Oh, it's you, said the gunwoman, in an unexpectedly familiar feminine voice. She holstered the gun and pulled off her face mask. Professor Maynard? exclaimed Joe. Is that you? Now, I must pause to explain a few things. Joe recognised this gunwoman because Professor Maynard was their mother's boss. Joe Finn and April's mother was a very dowdy middle-aged woman. She wore frumpy, practical clothes, cheap, thick-framed glasses, and often forgot to brush her hair for several weeks at a time. So to them, their mother's boss was frumpiness squared. She was just like their own mother, only more so and older. She was the type of woman you'd expect to absentmindedly offer you the used tissue she just pulled out of a sleeve cuff. Not the type of woman you'd expect to burst into your home, dressed like a ninja and brandishing a weapon. Yes, I'm afraid it is me, said Professor Maynard. Terribly sorry about that. It can't be much fun for you to have an old lady burst in and wave a taser at you when you should be doing your homework. That's a taser, asked Finn. It looks a lot like a real gun. Don't be a silly sausage, said Professor Maynard. It would totally be against the rules to point a gun at children. But they do make our tasers look like guns, so they're more terrifying. She got the taser out again. See for yourself. Professor Maynard pulled the trigger and blasted the potted aspidistra that sat in the corner of the living room. The plant hissed and juddered as several thousand volts of electricity flooded through it. I think I'd rather get shot, said Finn, as the leaves of the plant turned brown, then black, then started to singe. Whoops, sorry, said Professor Maynard, releasing the trigger. I'm sure with a bit of water it'll perk up again. The plant was now slumped and dripping brown-green gloop. Never mind about that, said Professor Maynard, stepping in front of the plant so the children would stop looking at it. I expect you're surprised to see me. This was an understatement. Professor Maynard had only been to their house twice before. Once when their mother had locked herself out and another time when their mother forgot to come home from a conference in Uzbekistan and Professor Maynard had popped over until they could arrange a babysitter. I'm here to give you some very good news, said Professor Maynard. She smiled broadly to emphasise how good the news was and how lucky they were to be about to hear it. Your mother 
is in jail in a secret prison somewhere in Eastern Europe and will probably be there for a very long time. The children were horrified. How is that good news, asked April. Well, because she's not dead, said Professor Maynard. We're all very relieved she's not dead. And we'll leave it there. So you've got to read the book to find out how it all goes. To get the book, you can go to your local bookstore and order a copy. They'll be able to get it in for you. Or you can go to my website, raspratt.com, and click on the book depository banner. They've got all my titles and free international shipping. All right, that's it for now. Until next time, goodbye. <music>